He identifies himself with us to such a great degree that he literally partakes of the consequences of our sin, not just on the cross, but throughout his entire life. Today we continue on in this most incredible passage of Scripture found in Paul's letter to the Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, specifically verses 5 through verse 11. This is one of the most profound and the most intense sections of Scripture because this section of Scripture tells us more about the character of Jesus, the nature of Jesus, than anywhere else in our Bibles. Nowhere else do we find a plainer, more straightforward statement of the divinity of Jesus than right here in Paul's letter to the Philippians. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus is equal with God in every way. Everything that it means to be God is true about Jesus. But Paul is not only saying this, he's saying more than this. Last time we took a look at this word that Paul uses, though he was in the form of God. We saw how Paul is describing to us what Jesus is, what Jesus was before his incarnation, what Jesus has always been. He has always been the form of God. And so we looked at this phrase, this word that Paul uses, which is very unique and very rare and very precise. And we saw that what Paul means is not just that Jesus and God are equal. He means that, but he means much more than that. Jesus and God are completely equal, but the word that Paul is using is telling us that not only is Jesus equal with God, he is also the visible manifestation of the God we can't see. God the Father is spirit. We cannot perceive him with our physical senses. Therefore, Jesus, who is everything that it means to be God, Jesus and God are completely, utterly equal, but Jesus is also the visible manifestation of that. Jesus makes visible to us that which our physical senses cannot perceive. And so Jesus comes being completely equal with God, being completely on the same nature with the same essence as God. He comes and he makes what's not visible to us to be visible. But more than that, Paul is saying that that Jesus didn't become the form of God when he was incarnated at Bethlehem. Jesus always has been the form of God. That's what Paul says. He doesn't say he is the form of God. He was the form of God is what Paul says. So Jesus has always been this visible manifestation of that which our physical senses can't perceive. So we looked at the Old Testament. We saw how Jesus shows up all over the place in the Old Testament. Of course, we don't find the name Jesus, but we find Jesus showing up as the visible manifestation of that which we can't see. We see that all over the Old Testament. Jesus's purpose as he comes is to make what we can't see to be seen by us, to make the God that is spirit that cannot be perceived by humans to make him perceptible to us. That's what Jesus does. Then Jesus is incarnated, he's born as a baby, and he continues being the visible manifestation of everything that it means to be God. So that's what Paul was saying in this first phrase. But the last time we took a look at why is Paul saying this? What's the purpose? What's the point? What's the application? 
And we reminded ourselves that Paul is addressing the issue of pride here in the Philippian church. He is urging the Philippians to embrace biblical humility, put aside pride, and to be unified as a church. And so what he's saying to them is Jesus makes seen to you the God you can't see. And so therefore, looking upon God, seeing God, perceiving God, how can you possibly hold on to pride? Pride, which puts self at the center. Pride, which makes everything about me. How can you continue to embrace pride after looking upon Jesus? That's going to be Paul's point here. So last time, Paul is giving us this most profound information about the character and the nature of Jesus in the sense of his godness, his divinity. This time, we're going to look at the next phrase, and Paul is going to give us just as profound of information, just as deep of an insight into Jesus's manness, the the humanity of Jesus. He is the God-man. And so last time, Paul literally gave us this this information about Jesus's divinity that that was almost overwhelming for us to consider because we cannot fully understand that. But what we can understand is most incredible to our souls and to our minds. This time, Paul is going to give us just as profound of information about Jesus's humanity. That's what what we'll be looking at today. We'll begin by reading the larger passage from verse three down through verse 11. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Pray with me now. Gracious Father in heaven, we pray that the words of Paul are our words. We pray that the heart and the sentiment of Paul are ours as well when he says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to your glory. We pray that our knee would bow. We pray that our tongue would confess that he is supreme. He is king. He is Lord of all. And we pray that this would be the response of our heart to your glory. We pray, Lord, that we would think deeply and well about the Messiah, who, though he's always been equal with God, would take on humanity to himself. We pray, Lord, that you would expand our understanding of our Messiah, that you would increase our knowledge of our Messiah. In doing so, Lord, you would help us to see him, to perceive him. That was one of the reasons he came. He came to redeem us. He came to pay our sin debt, but he also came that we may see what we can't see. And so I pray that we would see you in Jesus Christ. In doing so, we would be moved to love you and to worship you more fully and more deeply. 
And we pray that this would all happen to the glory of Jesus Christ and ultimately to the glory of your name. For we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So our focus for today, our purpose for today, is to think well and to think deeply about the incarnation of Jesus. Last time we talked about Jesus prior to the incarnation, what Jesus was before his incarnation. He was in the form of God, meaning that not only was he equal with God, he is the visible manifestation of what it means to be God. Jesus enables us to see God. And so we looked at these Old Testament instances of Jesus coming and letting us perceive God with our senses. But this is not the focus of Paul in the passage. Paul's focus in the passage is not Jesus prior to the incarnation. It's Jesus after the incarnation. So he says that this Jesus, who is the visible manifestation of God, also becomes human, takes on the form of of a servant, the likeness of man. He takes on humanity. The Eternally existing, always unchanging God changes in the sense that he becomes what he was not before. And that is change, correct? To change is to become what you are not before. And so Jesus becomes what he was not. He becomes human. And he takes upon himself the full nature of humanity so that Jesus Christ now has two natures, two natures that are fused together for eternity in the one person, Jesus. He has the full nature of God, and he has the full nature of humans. How do we understand that? That is a miracle. That is, in fact, the second greatest miracle that God ever performs is this incarnation of his Son into humanity. How do we understand such a thing as this? Christians have always struggled to understand the humanity of Jesus, the incarnation of Christ. And we've never been able to fully understand this because this is ultimately incomprehensible. It's ultimately beyond the human capacity to understand such a deep and profound truth of God. But the fact that we can't understand everything about the incarnation of Christ is not the same thing as saying that we can't understand anything about it. Because certainly we can understand things about the Incarnation. In fact, that's why the Scriptures are given to us. God doesn't give us the Scriptures that teach us about the Incarnation of Christ and expect us to say, well, we don't understand anything about that. Of course we can understand some things about the Incarnation, and what we do understand overwhelms us. Here are some of the things that we can understand about Jesus' Incarnation. When Jesus became human, Jesus did not become a human in our pre-fall condition. Jesus did not take on humanity as Adam experienced humanity prior to his fall. Jesus takes on humanity and experiences humanity in our post-fall condition after we have come under the consequences of sin. Jesus Christ never committed sin. Jesus Christ was not a sinner in the sense that he himself sinned. However, Jesus takes on humanity, not in our pristine, perfect, unconsequented, pre-fall condition. Instead, he takes on humanity after the fall, when we are now shackled with the consequences of sin. 
What are the consequences of sin? Well, certainly the primary consequence of sin is separation from God. And Jesus, of course, on the cross experienced this separation from God. He cries out, Father, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was forsaken on the cross. He wasn't just imagining that. He was truly forsaken by the Father. As he became our sin, the Father had to turn his back on Jesus, forsaking him on the cross because he has become the sin that God cannot look upon. So he certainly experiences that on the cross. But let's think more in Jesus' day-to-day life. How did Jesus, on a day-to-day basis, how did he experience the consequences of sin? So let's think about the consequences of sin. Let's think about the curse of sin upon mankind. Let's think about the curse that God pronounces after Adam and Eve fall in the garden, and God comes and he pronounces this curse upon all of humanity, this curse that consisted of things like frustration. Adam and Eve would now both experience frustration in their individual roles that God has given them. Adam would experience frustration in the the bringing forth of food from the soil. Eve would experience frustration in her role as helper to the man. So their their lives from being now not being free from frustration are now full of frustration. Also there's there's the consequence of fatigue. Our bodies now become fatigued as a result of sin, as a consequence of sin. Uh Tiredness, weariness was not the intention of God. Instead, the curse of sin brings that upon our bodies or the, the consequence of, of pain. Jesus or Adam and Eve were not intended. God did not intend for humanity to experience pain or physical pain. Yet the curse of sin brings that upon us as one of the consequences of sin. Uh, what about hunger or thirst? All these things are consequences that sin has brought upon humanity as a result of our fall into sin. So now, does Jesus experience all of those consequences of sin? Certainly he does. He experiences the full experience of what it's like to live with the consequences of sin. Was Jesus ever frustrated? Sure he was. He was frustrated with his disciples at their inability to understand and their inability to believe and trust. He was frustrated with the Pharisees, with the religious leaders for their burdening of the people with these excessive burdens. He was frustrated with the lack of response from Jerusalem and from the people. What about uh, fatigue? Was Jesus ever fatigued? Certainly, he was fatigued all the time. In fact, he was so fatigued in one instance that he literally falls asleep on a small boat in a storm on the Sea of Galilee? Or what about pain? Jesus, of course, experiences greater pain and suffering on the cross than probably most of us will ever experience in our entire lives. Or hunger and thirst. Was Jesus ever hungry and thirsty? Sure he was. Jesus experiences all of the consequences, all of the symptoms of sin, yet he never sinned. So think about it this way. We experience the consequences of sin. Sometimes those consequences are are not the consequences of our own sin. We experience the consequences of Adam's sin. Sometimes we experience the consequences of other sin, but we also experience the consequences of our own sin. We are all born with this sinful nature that assures us that as soon as we are capable of making a choice, we will choose sin. And so we live this life that in large measure is is lived under the consequences of sin. And those consequences are a burden to us. Yet Jesus lives his life under the consequences of sin, but none of it was his. 
None of it was a result of his own sin or his own choice. He was the sinless one who comes and lives not as the sinless one who is free from the consequences of everybody else's sin. He lives as the sinless one who shares in our consequences, participates in our consequences. He identifies himself with us to such a great degree that he literally partakes of the consequences of our sin, not just on the cross, but throughout his entire life. Look with me at what the writer to the Hebrews says in chapter 2 in verse 10. For it is fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, in other words, Jesus, should make Jesus perfect through suffering. How is Jesus made perfect through suffering? Jesus is perfect. He's the sinless, perfect Son of God. So how is Jesus made perfect through suffering? One of the, one of the senses, the, in fact, the main sense of the word perfect in our Bibles is, is not flawless, but instead complete. So Jesus is made complete. He's made the complete Messiah through suffering. How so? By his suffering, in other words, by his experiencing of the consequences of our sin. Certainly, Jesus' suffering culminates on the cross, and that is the main central suffering of Jesus. But his entire life was an experience of the suffering of humanity. He is made perfect and complete as he experiences the consequences of our sin, as he experiences fatigue and frustration and pain and hunger and thirst and all these things that are consequences of our sin. He's made perfect because now he has experienced what we experience. You see, God has always had a perfect knowledge of all things. That's part of what it means to be God. Jesus, before he was ever incarnated, had a perfect, complete understanding of all things. Among those things are what we experience. Jesus could understand perfectly what we experience in this life without ever experiencing. However, we, we can understand that having perfect knowledge of a thing and experiencing a thing are two different things. You can have perfect, absolute, complete knowledge of what it's like to leave the orbit of the earth and travel to the moon. You can, you can read every book there is about that. You can interview astronauts. You can understand perfectly what it's like to go up in a spacecraft. But that is not the same thing as actually going up in a spacecraft. Because experiencing a thing and knowing a thing are two different things. Now Jesus has come, and because he has come as human, because he is human and shares in the consequences of our sin, he now perfectly understands that because he experiences it. God has now experienced what we experience. Look at what the writer says two chapters later, in chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. You know, another consequence of sin is temptation. You know that it's true that the more we surrender to sin, the more sin tempts us. And so that's actually a consequence of sin. As we engage in sin, as we allow ourselves to enter into sin, then sin becomes even more enticing and more tempting to us. God in a similar way, 
has never been tempted by sin, but he certainly has a perfect understanding of what it means to be tempted by sin, but he comes as a man, he comes as fully human, and he now experiences what we experience in our temptation to sin. God the Father, with his perfect, complete, flawless knowledge of what humans experience and endure and and go through as we are tempted to sin, he nevertheless cannot relate to that because he's never experienced it until God becomes a man and experiences temptation. Now his knowledge is, as the writer says, perfect and complete. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Truth That Transforms with pastor and Bible teacher Jason Wilkerson. Truth That Transforms is the daily teaching broadcast of Disciples Fellowship Church. We invite you to visit our website where you will find more resources to help in your journey of discipleship. You can find us at www.disciplesfellowshipnc.com or connect with our Facebook page at Facebook slash Disciples Fellowship NC. Truth That Transforms exists to glorify Jesus Christ through the teaching of His sanctifying and disciple-making Word.